0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. I'm currently on a book tour around the United States and hope to see you. Find the schedule of my events at warisalie.org. It is my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Peter Ends. He is Associate Professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University and Executive Director of the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research. He is also Team Leader of the Cornell Institute for Social Science Theme Project on the Causes, consequences and future of mass incarceration, and he is a former faculty director of Cornell's prison education program. His research has been funded by the National Science Foundation and the Russell Sage Foundation and has appeared in journals such as the American Journal of Political Science, British Journal of Political Science, Journal of Politics, Perspectives on Politics, and Public Opinion quarterly. He edited with Christopher Lezin, who gets represented, and he is the author of the book that is the topic of this week's program, Incarceration Nation: How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World. Peter Ends, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much,
1: David. Thanks for having
0: me. Thank you and thank you for writing this book. Tell us the your basic Thesis: What caused mass incarceration over the past uh, number of decades in the United States?
1: What I'm trying to draw attention to with this book is the important role of public opinion and specifically the public's punitiveness and how that shifted over time. And when we think of the U.S. legal system, the criminal justice system, we often think or maybe have the ideal that it would be insulated or protected from the public's preferences. But when we look at the data and the record, public opinion and rising punitiveness through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s has been a driving factor in the rise of mass incarceration in this
0: country. Driving factors, so one factor among many, or really the decisive factor in creating this situation?
1: My research shows that the decisive factor. Now, politics, the political world, the criminal justice system, these, these are complex issues. So there's always going to be multiple things going on, and different forces can influence each other in different ways, and we could see back and forth type effects. But over and over again, we, we know that political decisions, for example, how crime is punished sentencing rates mandatory minimum sentences these were political choices that were made and at both the state and the federal level but what what we have to keep in mind is the reason for these pol- that the political decisions moved in a punitive direction was that our political leaders and the criminal justice system were following an increasingly punitive public and a growing public demand for being tough on crime.
0: And the public opinion was following, in your understanding, media coverage, and media coverage was following reality in terms of increased crime rates? I mean, it sounds like a perfectly functioning democracy almost.
1: Yeah, well, in, with, with a few important caveats, and so one one aspect of this this democratic component of the system representing changing public opinion is it really raises the question of what is the role of public opinion and we ended up with the highest incarceration rate in the world so so that's uh, an important thing to reflect upon the other thing is your characterization is exactly right when the crime rate began going up in the 60s and it continued through the 70s and 80s and early 90s media covered crime more. So there is this link with media covering crime more, and then crime's been going down since the 90s, and media's covered crime less. So this over-time connection is exactly as we would expect. But the important caveat is media tends to portray crime in a very specific way. So we get over-reporting on violent crime, and so... The public tends to think there's much more violent crime committed than there is. Crimes that are committed by racial minorities tend to be uh, overreported by media, both in newspaper and television. And then, of course, there's the common saying, if it bleeds, it leads, and that there's there's an element of truth to that saying, and what that refers to is how, again, the types of crimes being covered and how media are covering the crime. So, Just because the media covers crime more when the crime rate increases and that translates into a a more punitive public, it doesn't always have to be that way. Media could choose to cover crime in different
0: ways. So if uh, U.S. television news broadcasts had covered crime during the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and had covered uh, crime in relationship to gun proliferation, in relationship to slashed budgets for schools, in, in relationship to uh, poverty and, and other factors contributing to crime, the results might have been significantly different from the sort of context-free, scary focus on the latest violent crimes by uh, non-white Americans.
1: That's, that's absolutely correct, because when, if the, if these news stories were bringing up these points you mentioned and thinking of the causes of crime, of uh, why crime rates increasing, what, what policies are going to be the most cost-effective in terms of addressing crime and reducing crime, we might expect a very different public response. But if it's focusing on the nature of crime and over-reporting on violent crime, this is what leads to that natural public response of a demand for being tougher on crime, which turns out to be having the highest incarceration rate in the world, as the U.S. now does, that's incredibly expensive. And so most researchers, uh, most economists now are in agreement that it actually this is not even close to the most cost-effective way to try to reduce crime.
0: In your book, you cite also possible uh, public response to not just crime coverage on news shows, but criminal dramas out of Hollywood on, on television. Um, I mean, surely that is not a, a simple uh, reporting on reality, but very selective fictionalization of what's going on. And, and that's influencing uh, public opinion on, on political solutions.
1: Absolutely. This was something I was very interested in because as I was trying to understand why the public became more punitive, this is also a period where these television shows, crime dramas, are becoming increasingly popular. And so what I was able to do was get data from the Nielsen Corporation, who tracks how many people are viewing each show. And I was able to find which type, how much of the viewing population was watching these crime dramas over time. And what's interesting is in the early period of rising public punitiveness, we actually see a a decline in the viewership of these types of crime dramas moving in opposite directions. This is partly because of the short-lived family viewership hour where there was an attempt to put different, more family-friendly programming in primetime viewing hours. So what this shows is, the punitiveness appears to be following the news and the news coverage of the crime rate. But, so the, the driving factor was not the proliferation of these crime shows. But that doesn't mean there's zero effect. And in fact, there's some evidence of this reinforcing effect. As the public became more punitive, we saw more of these shows. But that might have had this reinforcing effect further contributing to public punitiveness.
0: Now, what you try to argue, Peter, in in your book, uh, Against uh, a Common Belief, is that when public opinion developed in favor of more punitive incarceration policies, politicians followed that uh, as representatives in a government should, rather than the the politicians... uh, imposing that idea on the public with their demagoguery. Uh, is is that right? And, and how can you, uh, how do you uh, substantiate that claim in your book?
1: Sure. The, yeah, the standard view is we think back to um, prominent politicians, so often Barry Goldwater comes to mind, Richard Nixon, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, as taking these tough on crime positions. And the standard view is the public was hearing the politicians speak, and the public then reacted to what the political leaders were saying. But As as I looked into the, the history, that's not what the evidence shows. And I'll give you one example. I looked at, um, through the uh, President Richard Nixon's library with the archival materials that are available, I could access internal campaign memos from his 1968 campaign. And what was going on was... Even before the nominating convention, they were looking at national polls being conducted by the main survey organizations of the day. They were also conducting their own polls, and they found that public concern with crime was consistently at the top of the list. The public uh, was responding that they were concerned with crime. They thought that the courts and the system were too lenient. And so in these memos, they keep referring back to these public opinion polls, and they're crafting a campaign strategy. And if we think back to 1960, with Nixon's unsuccessful presidential campaign, he didn't emphasize crime. Uh, domestic crime never came up in his campaign. So if we think of Nixon as leading the public, we might have thought in both '60 and '68, crime would have been a top issue. But it wasn't. The change to focusing on crime based on these internal memos. That, are, that I was able to access indicate they were actually noticing public concern with the issue and building that into the campaign strategy.
0: What makes the United States so radically different from the rest of the world? If its incarceration rate 50 years ago, 60 years ago, was not so out of the, the the mainstream on earth uh and now it is i mean was it a difference in the character of our public or in in crime rates that developed for certain reasons or in the media and hollywood uh, or in our how our politicians operate what what has made this difference
1: all of those factors you mentioned definitely play a part one thing i'll I'll add and and this relates to the nature of the political system as you mentioned In the U.S., we have a a two-party system. There's sometimes exceptions, but it's typically the Republican or the Democratic Party. And in other countries that have proportional representation systems, other democracies, this leads to multi-party systems. So what happens with the issue of crime and punishment in the U.S. with a two-party system, the Republican Party was more in tune to the public's increasing punitiveness early on. And so, but then the Democratic Party noticed this, and they aligned themselves also with the rising public punitiveness. And so we see this with President Lyndon Johnson in his landslide election victory in 64. In the months after his his election to the White House, his public approval ratings are through the roof. He's incredibly popular, but he starts to shift speech after speech in a more and more punitive direction. Instead of emphasizing addressing the roots of crime, he starts addressing the need to put more police on the streets, the need to do more to address, uh, to to support the criminal justice system in an immediate way. And so crime is an issue where if the public's becoming more punitive, even if the most cost-effective approach is investing in schools, communities, Job training mental health uh, policies those take longer, and politicians can say point to how much more they put in the budget, how many more police they put on the street, how many more individuals were arrested and locked up those immediate mm-hmm. numbers once one party went in that direction of a short term strategy, the other party had that incentive, and then just fed off each other and kept us going for decades of rising an increasingly punitive system and rising incarceration
0: rate and the difference in other countries without the two-party system and with a different system of communications that has allowed them to uh, address poverty and uh, and other causes of crime rather than simply packing more prisons full of people what what how has the difference worked in those other places
1: well in some cases countries have have, um, more on their social safety networks, and so there's that element. In the, what I think often happens in a a system, like many European democracies, that have multiple prominent parties, those parties can stick to their issues, and they're known for more narrow issues, so they stick to their issues uh, year after year, election after election. And in the U.S. context, you know, it's very interesting. We're in a very politically polarized environment where Democrats and Republicans are tend to be very far apart, uh, the political parties, on most issues. But when they align in the same direction, and they didn't always want the exact same policies. There are very meaningful differences, even on crime and punishment among Democrats and Republicans. But when they both shift in a more punitive direction together, that pushes policy along faster than we would in a system where there are multiple parties, each advocating for their more specific sets of issues, trying to come to agreement.
0: It seems like you're telling a story, though, for all its flaws of... Really representative government in the United States, uh, some decades gone by now, and and I wonder if you find that was true uh, in those years for other issues beyond. Uh, punitiveness and mass incarceration, uh, because today and in recent decades, uh, it certainly on many, many issues does not look like the U.S. government responds to public opinion uh, in in any uh, consistent way. Uh, There have been studies looking at, you know, where public opinion is on polls on many issues and where the government is uh, and finding no overlap. I mean, scholarly studies concluding that the U.S. government is an oligarchy, you you know, is this something that has has worsened uh, so that the government was properly responding to the public demand for b- mass incarceration, and now is going to fail to properly respond to a public demand to undo mass incarceration uh, through you know the factors of funding from private insurance, private uh, incarceration companies, and and all these other forms of of corruption, uh, or or is this issue is this issue different? Uh, I mean, was our government not very responsive on other issues even 50 years ago?
1: That's a great question that raises a, a lot of important things we need to think about. So one is, is this idea, is, is the, has the political system changed? Are we less representative? And probably the biggest shift in the political system in the United States is the importance and the amount of uh, fundraising that politicians need to do so they're increasingly dependent on more and more money for their campaign so this is a big change in u.s. politics at the same time the public's been moving in a less punitive direction and we see prominent members of both political parties both on the Democratic side and Republican side calling for the need for criminal justice reform so it appears that even in this day and age the politicians are noticing shifting public opinions and responding. And when I say shifting public opinions, that's really important because what I'm showing is that when public opinion moves in a certain way, as punitive, some responds in that same direction. Oftentimes, the policymakers, politicians are doing what we want. It's the very specific details, and so. The ma- a mandatory minimum sentence of 20 years. When the public becomes more punitive, most members of the public, they don't have specific sentence lengths in mind. They don't have specific classifications for what should be a felony and what shouldn't, what constitutes an amount of drugs that is uh, possession versus intent to sell. So these details, those often don't align with the, what the public's ideal view is, because the public often doesn't have that level of specificity. We leave that to the policymakers. But when public opinion moves in a certain direction, the system tends to respond. But when we're talking about the implications for representation, w- there's been the consequences of the, the justice system and mass incarceration. Even if it was following the public, by many counts, it's hard to think of this as actually representing the public, because The negative implications um, are massive in terms of the cost of maintaining the world's highest incarceration rate, but also the implications for those incarcerated, their families, their communities are overwhelming. And it's not been distributed equally in the sense that those of disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds are much more likely to be arrested and imprisoned, racial minorities are much more likely to be arrested and imprisoned, and so do, although it, on the one hand, feels democratic, public opinion changed and the system responded, when we focus on the outcomes and the consequences and the cost, from that perspective, it doesn't feel
0: democratic at all. In fact, you cite in your introduction, in your book, uh, studies suggesting that mass incarceration can actually increase criminality rather than decreasing it. Uh, it, it given that possibility, is it, is it the case that the public wants to punish somebody, whether they're guilty or not, so badly with such uh, irrational rage that they just don't care if it produces more crime? Or is it the case that the politicians, who perhaps know a little bit more uh, what's going on, uh, have that disregard for for human welfare, uh, or that that everybody just doesn't know?
1: I think what's happened is, when crime was going up, and we talked about this focus on violent in the me- Crime and punishment is an incredibly complex issue, and it's really hard to know what the best policy is going to be. And so I think the, the public punitiveness focused on the narrow, focused on the need to do something, the need to crack down, the need to punish, and kind of like you described. And it was, I don't think, a, a disregard for others, but I think it was a very uh, narrow, specific focus, and media coverage of crime wasn't encouraging the public or politicians to think or talk about this in a broader context. We're seeing a little bit of change in that now with uh, increased attention within the media to uh, racial disparities within the criminal justice system. We also see uh, media coverage of uh, in injustices or errors in the criminal justice system and coverage of sometimes individuals who have been on death row and have then been released exonerated because they were found to be innocent and so when as the crime rates gone down and media coverage has begun to present the information in a little more nuanced way the public opinion can be quite smart and members of the public care about these issues, and when they're given the relevant information, the the appropriate context can be brought to bear, and so hopefully we're in an environment where the discussion can be more information-based and have the appropriate nuances instead of just a demand for punishment and ignoring the consequences.
0: You know, during about the same years that you look at this growth in punitiveness in the U.S. public, the U.S. government has been marketing its overseas wars as punishment of international wrongdoers uh, and has normalized warfare to the point where a presidential candidate was asked some months back in a debate on television, are you willing to kill thousands of innocent children as part of your basic responsibilities as commander-in-chief, to the point where our current President has bragged about the seven nations uh, he's bombed, and I, I can't—I I can find hardly anyone who can even name them. Uh, it, it's become this sort of uh, accepted punitive, counterproductive—you uh, know—war on terrorism that increases terrorism, and we don't care. We'll just do more of it. Have you ever looked at connections between this punitive attitude domestically uh, and? U.S. foreign affairs, where in war making, the United States is as different from the rest of the world as it is in incarceration.
1: That's a really interesting point, and I haven't looked at the overtime public attitudes toward war in this way, but I think the connections you're, you're making make sense, because it really relates to when media covers an issue in a, in a very similar way, in a very focused way, It tends to drive and have a very strong influence for public opinion. When we get uh, more, if we if media covers, so again, an an issue like how to decreasingly complicated international relations, and how to best protect uh, a society from uh, potential foreign or external threats, or in a a world where terrorism is increasingly um, on the minds of people. These are complex issues that require complex debate and if we just get punchlines headlines that's going to lead to different public reactions and probably different political reactions than if we get more context more discussion and and more more research and investigation
0: Uh, we have just a few minutes left thinking about the the two party system and the possibility of our government actually representing us on this issue uh, and the increasing uh, power of the presidency and obsession of the public with the presidency you have uh, a candidate in Donald Trump who to all appearances wants to increase mass incarceration Uh, you have a candidate in Hillary Clinton who talks about uh, opposing over mass incarceration as if she wants the just the right level of mass incarceration, uh, and and both of them widely despised by the U.S. public. I mean, their negative ratings <laughs> through the roof. Uh, how can, uh, if one of these individuals drives the agenda going forward, um, how will that represent uh, U.S. opinion shifting against mass incarceration?
1: Sure, the. The, the current political environment with the presidential election very very important and of course important for the future of this country politically so I think one important point to remember and and recognize is how much Hillary Clinton as a candidate has shifted her view from in 1994 when the crime bill, when she supported the 1994 crime bill and it was signed by uh, President Bill Clinton so that shift although she, uh isn't calling for an and uh, for radical change she's shifted dramatically and that's consistent with the declining public punitiveness i've mentioned during this time period so a big a big factor is how is the public's view toward crime and punishment going to continue in the future years will they continue to become less punitive if the crime rate drops we can expect that if the crime rate goes up it's gonna depend how media covers crime and you you mentioned um, Trump as a as a candidate and Trump is is really uh, hard hard to understand that's partly uh, you know a, uh, I'm a political scientist and political scientists have have really struggled as I think media and, and a lot to understand nobody predicted Trump would have this much success but it we're still in the primaries. if Trump becomes the nominee It would be uh, it's, it's highly possible that if he's attempting to win the general election, he will look also to the shifting public attitude and he will change his statements more to be more in line with the overall public as opposed to the primary voters who
0: he's currently catering. Well, I suspect it's going to take uh, more than just the right answers in polls. It's going to take a massive popular movement to move some of these people, if we can do it. Um, but I think this this book uh, gives us a wonderful idea of how we got here, uh, and I highly recommend it. It's called Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the Most Punitive Democracy in the World by Peter Enns. Peter, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. My pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. I'm traveling around the United States right now doing events with my new book, War is a Lie, second edition. I hope to see you find the schedule of events at warisalie.org. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org.